We good? Okay. All right, so we are in getting close to the end of Luke. We're in Luke 21 and 22 this week. And just as a quick review from last week where we came from. So we last week talked about Jesus coming in to Jerusalem knowing that this is his last week on earth. If Luke is looked at as kind of a biography of the time that Jesus spent on earth, this is the getting close to the final chapter. We know what is coming. Jesus knows what is coming. He comes through Jericho to Bethany. Let me get my nerdy little slides going again for you. Through Bethany, and then right down here, he's going on the Mount of Olives, rides the donkey down the Mount of Olives, across the valley, into Jerusalem. Now, this last section, pretty much for reference point, everything we're going to talk about, Jesus is going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth across that valley. I showed you the picture of the valley, Kidron Valley, last week. He is going up the Mount of Olives, down into the valley, into Jerusalem, back down the valley, up Mount of Olives, and back and forth and back and forth. So here's a picture in 3D to kind of show that down and back and forth. So much of what we're talking about today is just taking place in this little section of Jesus going back and forth. So at the end of chapter 20, we have those religious leaders kind of following Jesus around and questioning him. And it says that they are trying to capture him. They're trying to destroy him, right? And we talked about how exhausting that must have felt to just walk around all the time complaining and being bitter and just trying to capture him and ask just the right question to get him to give the, right, the wrong answer so they could say, aha, now we've got you, Jesus, right? That's so exhausting. And he ends chapter 20, and I'm just going to read it verbatim here. Jesus literally says to the crowds following him, beware of the scribes. Now remember, the scribes are the religious leaders. The Pharisees, they're the religious leaders. These are not thought of as the bad guys at that point, really, right? Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. So the end of our last chapter, he sets up this warning, don't be like them, all for show on the outside. Immediately after this, we come into chapter 21. It says, Jesus looks up and he sees a widow. The widow has two little copper coins. They're about worth an eighth of a cent. I mean, this was not very much at all. And he sees these rich people who are putting their offering in the offering boxes. And then he sees the widow who is putting in her two copper coins. Now, comparatively speaking, the amount she put in was less than the amount that the rich people put in. But proportionately speaking, she put in everything, right? This was all she had to live on. She was so poor that she should have actually been a recipient of some of the offerings that were going into the offering bins for, for the poor. But she came there with a humble heart and she put in everything. She sacrificed it all. She put herself in a place of being completely dependent on the Lord. And I just think this is an interesting juxtaposition, right? We've got him saying, don't be like these people that are just all for show on the outside. Look at this widow. Her heart is humble. She is trusting the Lord for her every provision. 
be like her, right? Look at her and what she is doing, the example she is setting for us. I see here a, a really big contrast Jesus is making between pride and humility, kind of over and over. Remember last week, they think Jesus is going to ride in like a conquering king, but he rides in on a humble donkey, lowly, right? He's pointing back constantly throughout these sections to humility, humility, humility. Immediately after this, I think it's kind of funny when you stop and think about this, what do the crowds around him do? They go, oh, look at the temple. Look how beautiful it is. Look at these gold statues that are in here. It's so beautiful. And it struck me as funny here. He literally just lifted up this widow for being so humble that she gave all that she had into the offering box. And the followers are paying attention to the decorations, right? They're like, hey, this place, it's pretty gorgeous. Look at all the gold statues around here. And it, Jesus immediately just says, look, the day is coming when this is not going to be here. The day is coming when stone will fall upon stone here. And I just see that again, the juxtaposition of going pride, humility, pride, him saying that outside is not what is important. The beautiful gold on the outside of this temple is not what's important. It is the heart. That is what Jesus is placing the higher value on. So speaking of the temple, we're going to take a quick little detour from the passage and talk about this because this is pretty relevant. So here again is just a picture of the temple. The temple is no longer there. We're going to talk about that in a second. But you know, it is made of white marble and gold, so it is gleaming in the sun. It was huge. It was remarkable and beautiful to look at. We'll go back here for a second. So a quick history on the temple. The first temple was actually built by King Solomon, right, in 950 B.C., and that replaced historically what were the tabernacles in the desert, right? So now we're saying, okay, here is the temple that God had Solomon build in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, which is the place where Abraham had taken Isaac to sacrifice him, and God provided the lamb to take his place, right? So that is the mountain where this temple is being built. So Solomon builds it. Now that temple ends up, that became the place for Israelites to go and sacrifice to the Lord, but it was completely destroyed later on by the Babylonians. Now in 538 BC, so again, we're going backwards in numbers, right? Because we're before Christ. We're, getting, we're marching up to Christ being on earth. A second temple has begun. And then it has kind of a long history, which we don't have time to go into today, but look it up sometime. March forward a little bit more in history, and we get to 20 BC. So about 20 years before Christ, Herod the Great comes on the scene, and he basically renovates and expands the temple that is in Jerusalem. So he makes the Temple Mount, that section at the top of the mountain that had all the courtyards. Let's see if I brought a picture of that. Well, you can see it here, this entire space with the courtyards and then the inner courts and the temple. He makes this entire section bigger, renovates it, makes it more beautiful. Now again, the temple is not there today, but I wanted to show you guys a couple of pictures. There is a section of an outer wall that is still there. You've probably heard of it. It's known as the Western Wall, or sometimes we call it the Wailing Wall. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But 
When you go underground, which I took this picture underground, you see the construction. Now this is 20 years before Christ and it just blows my mind. Have you ever traveled somewhere? We, we're in California, we're like, wow, that was in the 1800s, you know, right? The gold rush, so long ago. And then you travel to other places and you're going, wow, this was built before Christ? This is amazing. And I just, it blew my mind, the structure of this, the detail work that Herod, obviously he wasn't physically the one out there building it with his hands. He was probably having servants and slaves build it, unfortunately, but you get the idea, like they put, so much effort into building this temple, right? Just look at, I mean, these lines are incredible how straight and perfect they all are. And that was the entire structure. And that's just the wall. That's not even the temple, right? So just the detail work, the effort, all the work that was put into building this temple was amazing. Here's another picture of a wall or a section of that wall. And then this is kind of part of the exposed section of the Western Wall above ground that we can still see today. And again, it just, it's beautiful. This is limestone, but obviously the marble is not there anymore, but you can just think about the work that was put into building this beautiful temple. So that's the temple that they're at. And just imagine if you were one of Jesus' disciples and you're commenting on how beautiful this place is, and this is, where you go to meet with God, and he says, this temple is not going to be here. The day is going to come. This is just outer glory. This is not what everything is about, right? This is going to crumble. It's going to fall stone upon stone, he says. Now, when I was there, it was very interesting because we had a guide who was not a Christian, not a believer, and yet, when he would take us around and show us things, he would say, in Israel, if you dig in the ground, it matches the text. And I thought that was so interesting. When you dig in the ground, it matches the text, right? So the temple was there. Jesus, at this point, they're standing in front of it, and he says, the day is going to come when it is going to not be here. And what happens? I think there's two things going on. One, He's prophesying something that is really going to happen, right? So in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple. They built wood scaffolding up on the outside of the walls and put flammable materials, wood, things that would burn, and they set it on fire. So when it burned, it made all the rocks crumble, the gold melt, all that beautiful gold work, right? And the temple was destroyed, and the rubble was thrown into the Kidron Valley, right? So the temple was destroyed just as Jesus said. So once again, we have Jesus saying this is going to happen, and it does happen. Now, it does not happen until 70 AD, so he was obviously no longer on earth. I mean, maybe one or two of his disciples was still around. Probably not. No, that would be pretty long. So they're not there anymore. They don't see this happen, but it happened. But I think he's also preparing them for what's about to take place, right? We talked about that a lot last week too. Look at all the times where Jesus is giving them a hint. This is what's gonna happen, right? The temple is going to fall. That's just something on the outside. Now what stands there today is the Dome of the Rock. So this is the location where the temple was. And um, this is a Muslim monument because um, this is now, like I said last week, part of the Western, or sorry, not the Western Wall, the Western Wall is there. This is part of the Muslim quarter. 
So I want to talk about one other aspect of the temple in this wall. The western wall, or the wailing wall as we sometimes hear it, is still standing there, okay? Now for faithful Jewish people, this is the place that is the closest to the Holy of Holies from the temple, right? The temple was destroyed, but if they go to this wall, they are literally standing as close as they can possibly stand to where the Holy of Holies would have been, right? So in their faith, this is as close as you can stand to touching the Lord, right? This is as close as you can get. So I never really understood what the Western Wall was until I went there. And um, faithful Jews come and they bring uh, little pieces of paper and they write prayers on them and they're putting them in the cracks of the walls and praying. And that's why sometimes it's called the Wailing Wall, right? Because we're crying out in prayer to the Lord. And the idea is that the closer that you, you can kind of see here, some of these little pieces of paper stuck in all the cracks and crevices, they don't want to walk up on there and accidentally step on where the Holy of Holies would have been. So they're going as close as we can possibly go to get my prayer in there as close to God as possible so that it could be answered. Now, my friends and I, when we were there, we thought, well, you know, we don't necessarily believe that that's true, that we have to put our prayer into the crack of this wall, but we're going to participate just out of tradition and a part of being here and experiencing being in Israel. So we wrote our prayers and we walked down and the, the sections are separate. So we walked down into the woman's section and we were approaching it. And I had this overwhelming feeling just wash over me. Lord, thank you. Thank you that there is no longer a wall between us and you. Like I said, it's kind of on the surface this week, sorry, but thank you that we have access to you and the wall is gone because of what Jesus did. Because, like the widow at the beginning, Jesus sacrificed it all for us. The veil was torn, and we have complete access to him. And we don't need to go up to a wall. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so back to the section. Jesus then goes into kind of a section of explaining a lot of what is to come. And there is a lot of prophecy here and details. And just for a matter of time, we do not have time to get into all of it. But I want to point out a couple things. He says there are going to be, he's again, preparing them for what is to come. As he knows, he is marching. We're probably about Wednesday here of Holy Week, right? So he knows what is coming. He knows the direction. He is marching and he is preparing his followers and saying... There's going to be nations rising above nations. There's going to be famines. There's going to be earthquakes. There's a lot going on in this section. But basically, here's the point that I want to make about this. In Matthew, it says in this same parallel section in Matthew, that all of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Birth pains. I've had four babies. Three of them were with epidurals. One of them was not. So when they say birth pains, now I have a better appreciation for what they're talking about, right? And I'm sure a lot of you do as well. It gets worse before it gets better, right? But you know, especially it was my third baby, 
that we got there and they're like, oh, no time for the epidural. I said, well, then I'm not having this baby. And they said, well, yes, you are. And I said, oh, okay. And when the man with the epidural walked out that door, I looked at my husband and it was like this washing over me of the Lord just saying, you've got to do this. You're going to do it, right? So I knew the pain that was coming, not to the full extent, but I also knew the joy that was coming, right? Going through the pain was going to yield something greater. Okay, so pointing, this saying is in Matthew, not in our section in Luke, but the parallel part of Matthew says, all of these are but the beginning of the birth pains, right? Jesus knows he is going to die on the cross. He is going to ascend and go back to heaven and leave us here. He is not coming in as the conquering king the way the disciples think. It is not going to happen today. He's not taking over the government. He is dying on the cross, going to heaven, and we will be here for we don't know how long until he comes back. And things are going to be hard. There is going to be pain. It is going to be like the pains of childbirth, where it will get worse, progressively worse, before it gets better. But we know what is coming. We know the joy that is coming. We have the promise that he says he is coming back, right? Now, this was immediate. The persecution that he says is coming is immediate for the disciples, right? They were thrown into it immediately. For us, we don't face that exact same kind of persecution very often, but we understand what he means, that this, it's like in another passage where it says the earth is just in groaning. We are waiting for that joy. We are waiting for Christ to come back, and there is pain through this process. It says in verse 15 that he will give us a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict when we face persecution. And I don't know about you, but I found incredible encouragement in there. Like, we will face hard times, but God, he promises he will be with us. He will give us wisdom to handle it. The beauty of what Christ is describing will come far outweighs the beauty of what the disciples were expecting, but there will be pain and persecution first. He then tells his followers to watch yourselves and stay awake at all times. Remember that. That's going to become kind of relevant when we're in the Garden of Gethsemane here shortly. But he's, again, preparing them, warning them. This is not going to look the way you think it's going to look, but trust me, it's going to be okay. All right, so we are in the last week of Jesus' earthly life, like we keep saying, and we're told that he's teaching in the temple every day, and then he's going back to the Mount of Olives every night. Across the valley to the temple to teach, back to the Mount of Olives at night. We now know that it's time for the Passover, it's, or at least it's getting close to the time for the Passover, and a quick what is the Passover? Why is this so significant? So in ancient Egypt, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, and the time comes where God tells them, I am going to get you out of Egypt, but all these plagues happen, yada, yada, right, 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 we're not going to go through all that right now. But basically, it comes to this point where the Lord tells them, slaughter a lamb, sacrifice a lamb, put the blood on your doorpost. And I'm sending this angel of death and all the firstborn children are going to be killed. But if you have that blood over your door, I will pass over and your 
your life, your child's life will be spared. Okay, so that's what the Passover was. Now, this is a huge celebration for the Israelites at this point. They, are, they come every year, like we talked about last week, as a big pilgrimage to the temple to celebrate the Passover. It is not insignificant that this is happening the week that we know Jesus will die, right? The lamb slaughtered to take the place of a life. So we know it says the time for the Passover is coming near, and what happens? Satan enters Judas's heart. Remember, the people were following Jesus around trying to capture him, and now one of his own, Satan, enters Judas's heart, and he decides to betray Jesus. And he goes to the leaders, and he makes a deal with them, basically. They say, we'll give you some money for this. He says, that sounds great, and I'm going to look for a time when there's not so many crowds around, and I'll, you know, tell you who, which one Jesus is so you can take him, right? I mean, they knew who he was, but this is the deal that he makes. Basically, he's going to go up, kiss Jesus, and then they'll take him away. But he's waiting for a time when there isn't a crowd. So now it's Thursday. It is the day of the Passover feast, and Jesus tells his disciples, okay, we need to go and prepare for the Passover meal. This is a big celebration, and I want to celebrate this with you. Again, in Luke, we have kind of a shorter description of it. So when you have a chance and you're back home, I want to encourage you to go to John chapters 13 through 16 and read that because I, I feel like it adds a little bit of richness and context to what is happening in the Last Supper as well. But Jesus sends Peter and John and he says, go into this area. Okay, so again, we are teaching every day in the temple, going to the Mount of Olives to spend the night. But he tells them to go down here and look for a man carrying water, which would have stood out to them because typically that was a woman's job. So you'll see this man carrying water and he'll take you, see that says upper room, to a room where you can prepare for the Passover meal. This is no small job. There has to be a lamb that is slaughtered and other preparations made, right? So they go ahead and they do this and they find that, of course, it's exactly as Jesus told them it would be. They find the man, they go to the room, they prepare for the Passover. Now in John, it starts out where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Luke doesn't include those details in his account of the story, and that's okay, but I just want you to picture, again, humility, the humility of Christ. Even Judas, who is about to betray him, Jesus gets down on his hands and feet and washes, hands and knees and washes even his feet and serves and shows humility doing a job that would have typically been a servant's job. Humility, humility, humility is what he has shown us time and time again here. So they sit in the room, they recline at table, and they have the Passover meal. And he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Again, he is preparing them. They don't understand it fully, but he is preparing them for what's to come. So he takes the bread and the cup, and he says, he gives thanks to the Lord, and he says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he takes the cup and he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do this and remember me. 
So he starts what we celebrate as communion there on that day at the Passover, just before he goes to the cross. Jesus tells them that one will betray him. He knows what Jesus is about to do. And again, it's almost funny if it weren't so sad, but the disciples in the midst of this going on and Jesus telling them, I'm going to go suffer. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. They start arguing about which one of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They still sort of think this kingdom is just happening right now and we got to get our, our, our best place, right, in, in what's happening here. Once again, it's their pride juxtaposed to his humility. He had just said, my body will be broken for you. I will be poured out. And they're trying to figure out which one of them will be the greatest. Jesus in this section also tells Peter that you're going to deny me. Peter says, no, 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 I won't deny you. I will go to death with you. And he says, no, you're going to deny me. <laughs> you know, just wait and see. Three times, this is evening. Now, three times before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. Again, just a little side note that's not included in Luke, but when you read the account in John, later on, when Jesus comes back, what does he say to Peter three times? Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Right? I don't know, but I see a connection there. Three times Peter's going to deny him. Later, three times he'll be restored. Right? Even when we mess up the worst, because this is a pretty big mess up of, of Peter, right? To deny Jesus that he just spent three years with, that he just promised he would go to death for, and to turn around and deny him three times that same evening. That's a pretty big mess up. But Jesus' grace later covers that. I don't know about you, but that is so encouraging to me, no matter how big I mess up, that Jesus has forgiveness and grace. So they head back across the Kidron Valley. I don't even know where I'm at with my pictures here, guys. Sorry, we'll see if we can catch up. All right, upper room. They head back over here. And Luke doesn't record the name of it, but we know it's the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, when I was a kid reading these stories, or even a few years ago reading these stories, I kind of thought it was like, here's the upper room and the garden's right outside. I don't know why. Maybe you think I'm crazy, but that was kind of my view of it. So it really did shock me to go there and realize, no, here's where they were having the Last Supper. And they walked back these several miles across the Kidron Valley back over here to Bethany and at the base of the Mount of Olives, that is where the garden is. Now, what else happened just not even a full week ago at the Mount of Olives? He rode down the Mount of Olives on the donkey to come in to Jerusalem, right? Now, when I was there, this just hit me like a lightning bolt. I was walking down the pathway that they say that this is the pathway you know there's no way to 100 percent know that's the exact location but you know that they are pretty close to where it would have happened that jesus walked down the hill riding the donkey not even a full week before this so we were walking down that path and all of a sudden i look over and i go wait the garden of gethsemane is right here so you mean to tell me that when jesus was entering on the donkey and people were screaming hosanna hosanna and he is going into jerusalem he knows what's coming 
And it, he passes it. He passed the garden. I just didn't realize the geography, and that hit me so hard. So he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he tells his disciples to stay near. Let me go to one of the pictures. This is, it's olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes, it says, a stone's throw away, and he begins to pray. And he, remember, he had warned them just a few verses earlier, stay awake, stay alert. He tells them again to stay awake, and what did they do? They fall asleep. Now in Luke, it just happens one time. In which gospel was it? Let me look this up again real quick. Um, I'm a little lost on my notes. But in one of the other gospels, it tells us it happens three times that he is praying in the garden and the disciples are just a stone's throw away and he asks them to stay awake, stay alert, pray that they don't go into temptation and they keep falling asleep. And he goes over and he wakes them up and he comes back and prays and he goes over and he comes back and he goes over and he comes back three times. In Luke, it just describes it happening once. But again, each author includes different details for different reasons. So it's a fuller picture sometimes when we look at different parts from other Gospels as well. So he's praying to the point of agony. Blood is literally coming out in sweat on Jesus as he is pouring his heart out to the Lord and saying, Lord, if it is possible, take this cup from me but not my will, yours be done, right? He knows what is coming, and he is completely surrendering himself to the Lord here. And our chapter here of Luke ends, where Jesus leads a crowd, sorry, Judas leads the crowd to Jesus, betrays him with the kiss. One of the disciples reaches out, cuts off one of the servant's ears, you know, like he's going to protect Jesus, and Jesus says, no, no more heals him, puts his ear back on, because why? He had just completely surrendered himself to what is coming at the cross. Don't fight this, guys. This is the plan, right? That's the end of our section here. Well, it's not actually the end of our section. They go back to Caiaphas's house over here. He's beaten and mocked. This is beginning Peter is there. Peter does deny him the three times. They have to wait till the next morning, and then they begin the trial. They begin the questioning of Jesus. So that is kind of the end of this section here. But I want to go back and kind of sit in the Garden of Gethsemane for a few minutes. Next week is more the trial and everything leading up to Jesus' actual crucifixion. But today, like I said, it just struck me when I was in Israel the proximity of the garden to the path. The path that Jesus walked down with everyone screaming, Hosanna, and now it's not even a week later. So I want to sit here with you guys for a minute in the garden, looking across the valley into Jerusalem, seeing the temple, knowing what is coming. Now I'm going to be really honest here. Here's where I'm going to get extra vulnerable. It's not too hard for me to teach what the Bible actually says because those are God's words. It is a lot more vulnerable for me to share something I've written, but I'm going to try to do that today because when I came back from Israel, I had this thought, putting this all together. I mean, this was just so impactful for me in my experience there. When he was walking 
down for the triumphal entry, riding on the back of the donkey, and his, the crowds were screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna. What do the religious leaders do? They say, tell your followers to be quiet. And what does Jesus say? He says, if they are quiet, the rocks will cry out. Because the Lord made the rocks. He put worship in all of creation. The rocks know who they are, know who Jesus is. The religious leaders, like we said last week, they've been waiting for Jesus. He is right in front of them, and they are not acknowledging who he is, but the rocks will, right? The rocks will cry out. So I was processing all of this when I came back from Israel, and I thought, what would it have been like to be an olive tree in the Garden of Gethsemane? Now, the ones that are there today were not there 2,000 years ago, but the way they graft olive trees with a shoot from a previous olive tree, the descendants of the olive trees there today are probably related to the ones that were there when Jesus was. So I'm going to ask you to imagine with me if you were an olive tree in the Garden of Gethsemane. I am an olive tree. My roots grow deep and my branches wide and strong. The workers come and pick my olives gently and tenderly. I haven't witnessed what happens next with the olives, but the stories echo through the garden paths. My beautiful olives are put into a press. They are pressed down with a heavy stone, crushed beneath the unbearable weight. Three times, three times they're pressed, the weight too much for them to bear, and yet what the, yield, what the pressing yields is far beyond what I could imagine when my olives were growing. My fruit is used to nourish. It heals, it soothes, it anoints. It's the oil of redemption, a purpose far beyond what I could have imagined, yet unattainable without the pressing. The oil brings life and health and peace. I've been standing here for years, a grafted shoot of my predecessors before me. I've watched people come and go for decades upon decades, gathering my olives, sitting under my shade, crafting pieces from my discarded twigs and branches. I've watched children play and mothers weep. I've been witness to the city that I love just across the valley before me, build and fall and rise up again, on a hillside where history has been made for centuries. But as I stood here, reaching towards the sunshine with my leaves and digging my roots ever deeper in the cool soil below just a few days ago, I witnessed something different than I'd seen before. I'm not quite sure how to explain it. I first heard a commotion from in the distance up the hill to my right. As it came closer, I realized the commotion was a beautiful sound. People shouting, Hosanna, as a donkey clopped down the road. They were laying down branches of palm, and their jubilant cries echoed across the valley. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord? I know the Lord. I may just be a tree standing in a garden, but I was created by the Lord. He formed me as a master craftsman, and he grew me here to put worship inside even me, so that the beauty of who I am echoes of who he is. Even I display his glory, me, an olive tree. Can you even imagine? I leaned forward as best as I can and nudged along by a gentle breeze to see him better, to catch a glimpse of the Lord riding on a donkey down the hill beside me. 
I could only catch a glimpse, but in that glimpse, I knew, I knew who he was. Every fiber of who I am recognizes him and cries out in worship along with the chorus, Hosanna, Hosanna. He passed by so quickly, just a moment's pause near my garden, and it might have been my imagination, but it seemed to me that he glanced this way ever so slightly, unnoticeable to the throng of followers, but in that instance, the sun caught his face, and I thought I saw the slightest glimmer of a tear in the corner of his eye before he turned his attention back to the road before him, the hill descending under a new donkey's careful tread, the valley before him separating my mountain from the other, the one with the gates, the temple, and the crowds. It's been days, and I haven't been able to forget that moment, the image of his face, barely glancing my way, filled not with sorrow, but with an incomprehensible heaviness as he passed by. Weren't the people all around him calling out in worship? Their cries were those of a people long waiting and expecting, now seeing. But his face, his face left me thinking that there must be something more, something unexpected ahead. Further down the road he travels. I wonder if I'll ever know, will I see his face again, the face of my Lord? It's growing dark now, another day is drawing to an end, but I found it hard to settle down to sleep in the days since I saw him. The longing inside me is unquenched. I want to know what it is, this feeling of something more. What's this? He's here. The Lord is back, but this time without the followers, without the chance of Hosanna, without the donkey or the palm branches or the parade into the city. He has returned to my garden, just a few companions beside him, and the glance I thought I noticed just days before is now fully developed into a face of anguish upon him. He kneels below me near my trunk, and I long to envelop him in my branches. My Lord, my Lord, why have they forsaken you? Every fiber of me cries out. This time his glance is in the opposite direction, from garden to path. Yet again, it was just a glance, unnoticed by his friends. It was just a moment, but in that moment there was a weightiness thicker than the heavy air of that night. His brief glance back toward the road he had, been, he had ridden down just days before, the coming king entering his city echoed his desperate plea that only my ears could hear. Father, if there is any other way. Yes, Lord, please, there has to be another way, I plead. He continues, but not my will, but yours be done. Nearby, his companions drift off to sleep. They don't see it. They don't understand. Our Lord is here, crushed under this unimaginable weight, but it's unperceived to them as they drift off to rest. Three times he rises and wakes them. Three times he travels back and forth across my garden. Three times. His brow sweats, his eyes pour out tears, his cries of anguish are felt through the earth around me. His pain, the pressing, causes blood to sweat out of his brow now. He wakes his companions, but they Oh, three times he is pressed under the weight in my garden Gethsemane, which means the olive press. Three times. He wakes his companions, but they continue to drift to sleep, unaware of the magnitude of what's happening before them. 
Before long, they come for him. They lead him away. My Lord, how I long to reach out my branches and wrap him up. No, Lord, don't do this. We know the trees, the earth, the rocks, the olives. We know. We recognize who you are. You made us to worship you. My trunk and my branches ache as he's led down the hill once more, across the valley yet again, through the gate on the other side, and into the city until I can see him no longer. I don't know what's to come. I can't see what will happen next. But I do know that I was just a witness to the most profound moment in all of history. He could have stayed. He could have stayed on his holy throne. But he chose, he chose to come here to cry into the dirt that he once formed with his own hands. The dirt that he breathed into to create the very man that he would now sacrifice everything for. To give himself over for a people who don't understand. To be pressed under the weight of it all in order to yield something far greater. Something redemptive something life-giving to everyone. I'm just an olive tree standing in a garden alongside a road across a valley from a hill with a gate. Someday I will no longer be here, but my shoot will be grafted into another and a part of me will carry on. What I witness today will remain in this garden in my descendants for generations to come. My branches, my leaves, my olives will bear witness to what happened here today when my Lord laid down his life for his friends. And I like to think that someday my descendants will bear witness in this garden too to when he returns to walk through that gate again. So, my application for you guys this week is simply to do what Jesus told us to do at the Last Supper, which is to remember. To remember his body broken for us, to remember his blood poured out for us, to remember that personally for yourself, because I know that my heart is prone to forget, and I need to take those times to sit in the Garden of Gethsemane and remember that Christ's body and his blood were poured out for me. So in order to wrap this up, what I want to do is um, I'm going to put some communion elements out here and just play a song. And if you feel like participating in remembering the Lord through communion, you can just come up to the stage when you feel so led and take a little cracker, dip it in the juice, and just have a moment between you and the Lord to remember what he did on the cross for you. And when the song ends, we'll just break up into our small groups and continue from there. But I'm going to pray and then we'll go into communion. Jesus, thank you for what you did for us. Thank you that you left your throne, that you came to earth, that you showed us the way of humility, that you took the path that led to the cross, that you took the punishment that was for us, that you were the lamb sacrificed so that we could live that you are the new temple, that when the wall, the veil was torn down in the physical temple on earth, Lord, that showed us that we 
have complete and direct access to God through you, through your death on the cross. I pray that this would never grow old, that we would never forget the depth of what that means for each one of us. Thank you, Lord, for your body broken for us. Thank you for your blood poured out for us. Help us to never forget. In Jesus' name, amen.